back for another episode of the Houndstein Center's podcast series, Off the Stage. My name is Maddie Miller, and I'm the media specialist for the Houndstein Center. Today, we are kicking off our winter semester of programming, and on the podcast, I am interviewing our keynote speaker for tonight's event for Martin Luther King Jr. Day commemoration. Dr. Mary Frances Berry, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Maddie. (laughs) So Dr. Berry um, is a historian, writer, lawyer, professor, and activist. She has done so much um, throughout her life. We had the joy of hearing you speak this afternoon, and I'm very excited for your keynote tonight. Um, But for those listening, seriously, I implore you, go do your research on all the incredible things Dr. Berry has done, winning so many awards, writing several books, and being an activist for civil rights, gender equality, and social justice in our nation. So today, our goal on this podcast is just to learn a little bit more about you, Dr. Barry. So first, can you share with us a little bit about um, where you grew up, what you did for fun, and what kinds of things you were involved in in your childhood and in your college years? Um, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, Davidson County, and... um, I grew up in a very poor family, and I was in an orphanage for a time when I was a baby. Um, and um, I, in my family, although in my extended family, especially on my mother's side, uh, which I know best, everyone was came from uh, the Southall Plantation uh, during slavery in Tennessee, um, which is in... Um, uh, Rutherford, I think it's Franklin, uh, near Franklin, uh, okay. Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, my mother used to tell me stories. She was one of uh, 12 children, youngest, and her mother died uh, in childbirth with her. And so she was raised by her older siblings, and her mm-hmm. father was a sharecropper and a tenant farmer. And she used to tell me stories about when she was a kid, how she, her job, was to go down to the creek with the older kids when it was not season to pick crops or to plant crops and they could go to school. And she would take them down and they had to go across the creek to get to where the school was and they walked there, of course. And she would take their her, her father's mule down to the creek with them and they would go across the creek on the mule and then the mule would come back and she would take the mule after each one of them had gone across (laughs) back to the house when she was a little child Uh, and that that was her job for her to do and then she'd come back and get them at the end of the day so it gives you some idea of what kind of uh, situation uh, it was Mm -hmm. my mother uh, moved to Nashville when my father left. First he went in the Army, and then um, he couldn't get a job, and he he, he didn't show up after that, mm-hmm. uh, although my mother never said anything negative about him. Um, and we moved in with some of our cousins and relatives and uncles and aunts and mm-hmm. lived with them in uh, Nashville. And then we were in an orphanage for a while while my mother tried to sort out her life and get some kind of training or skill or education so she could get a job. And she got became a licensed uh, beautician. And then she moved us into a house and she ran a beauty shop in the basement. Wow. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a shop, but she yeah. she worked at that. So anyway, uh, the one thing that is, a, is, is probably helpful to understand uh, about my life is that 
with all of that extended family and the fact that people were working class, poor people, mm-hmm. and had not much education themselves, they wanted their children to get education. Yeah. Um, they and all of them had lots of children, so there were twelve of them. So I have lots of I had a lot of cousins. Mm-hmm. And they all went to college except two people that I can think of, and those two refused to go. They didn't want to go. <laughs> they got a job and they didn't want to go. So that was the reason why they didn't. Their parents worked very hard at all kinds of jobs mm-hmm. to make sure that they could uh, have an education. And so I was instilled very early with the example mm-hmm. that what people do is they get as much education yeah. as they can, no matter how poor they are and how hard it is to get it. Mm-hmm. Because as they used to say, once you get it, nobody can take it away from you. Yeah. So does awesome. that give you any insight at all? Yes. Into, you know? And now you have set, you have a few degrees, several honorary doctorates. So that definitely rings true just reading your bio. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so one of the coolest things I thought um, while reading your bio was that you had worked in some form with four different United States presidents. So Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. Um, so can you tell us um, a little bit just in general about the highs and the lows of working for a presidential administration? And you, got, and you miss George the first. Okay. Yes. Poor George the first I'm Bush. I'm so sorry. But I have to apologize <laughs> George. to the first. George H.W. Bush. Yes, George W. Bush's him. father. Yes, yes. You skipped over him. Oh, I didn't see that on my research. But he's I one of reading. the. He was one of the people. Okay. Uh, I think that when I was in the Carter administration, I had been chancellor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and it's a funny kind of story because. I never. I didn't vote for Jimmy Carter. I didn't oh. vote. I've always been an independent, and I don't remember who I voted for. I think I voted for the Peace and Freedom Party or something. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was chancellor at the university, and we won the Big Eight football championship that year. The Buffaloes team okay. did, mm-hmm. and I didn't have anything. I didn't play football, but we won the game, and we went to the Orange Bowl, oh, and we yeah. played. I think Ohio State. Oh. And when we went to the football game, all of the trustees and everybody went, too. That's mm-hmm. what they did. Okay. And we had the Colorado Buffalo's mascot is a buffalo, <laughs> a real live buffalo. Oh, my goodness. And although the buffalo was female, the buffalo's name historically is Ralphie. Okay. Whoever the buffalo is. It yeah, Ralphie. Buffaloes, <laughs> that's the name of the buffalo. And so the buffalo goes to games with the team. And wow. uh, there are a whole group of people who work for the university who take the buffalo to wherever uh-huh. they're going to play. So we were all going down to the Orange Bowl, Miami, and the trustees were looking forward to a good old time, mm-hmm. uh, as usual. <laughs> and the uh, folks, the guys left with the buffalo. And I'm sitting in my office. They left a few days ahead of us to drive down there and with it in a truck. Uh, and I got this phone call, and then I got all these phone calls. And then all these people came. It was oh, my, no. I was in a, my first year there. And they said, Ralphie's lost. <gasps> the buffalo. <laughs> and at first I thought, Ralphie, that's somebody's child. Oh, the child is lost. There's a child lost. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder who's <laughs> child. And then I asked the woman who worked in the office there for me, and she said, Ralphie, don't you remember? That's the buffalo. <laughs> and these guys had somewhere in some little town they passed through. The buffalo had gotten out of the truck. 
somehow no. where they had him carrying inside of a truck. Yeah. You see animals going up and down, horses and stuff. <laughs> and, but, and so they were looking for him. And the whole part of Colorado there in that region in the Boulder Valley was all upset because the buffalo was lost. Yeah. And he was lost, it was a sheep, was lost for at least 24 hours. Oh, And I had all these people calling and telling me, and then the newspaper said that it was my fault that the (laughs) buffalo was lost. Your fault. (laughs) Because if they had never hired a woman chancellor, then the buffalo would have been safe. We we would have known how to keep the buffalo. We never all these years lost a buffalo. I don't see the correlation (laughs) between those two things. And then they found the buffalo, and we went to the thing. So we're at the game, and it's before the game, and everybody's partying, and I get this phone call. And the person who called me up said that, uh, this is Jimmy Carter. Okay. And I thought, yeah, and I'm a pygmy, and I live in Manhattan, and I'm going to sell you a bridge from Manhattan for $20. I thought that. (laughs) And I said, it's one of those trustees, you know. They play jokes all the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, finally they got off the phone, and then somebody else called and said, "Uh, this is Joe Califano. I'm calling for President Carter. And I thought, these guys, (laughs) they ought to go away. And he said, uh, President Carter wants you to come to Washington to run education. Oh, my goodness. And I said, who, you know, what? Who are you? <laughs> and finally he said, yeah, we, we want you to come. And we won't take no for an answer. You're going to come and blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 blah. And I hung up. Yeah. Okay. And then I went on, and we were at partying, and the chairman of the board came up to me, and he said, uh, did they call you? I said, who did? Who called me? <laughs> he said, the people from Washington. He said, uh, you know, I was the campaign chair for Carter mm-hmm. in the state, and Carter wants you to come to Washington. I told him it was okay. I said, how could you tell him yeah, <laughs> that it was okay? Was he board. said, we're going to give you leave so you can go down there and work for him. Because the president, if the president asks you to do something, you can't say no. Yeah. So we're going to give you a leave of absence so you can go down there and work for the president. <laughs> So I ended up going to Washington Mm -hmm. to work for the administration. And when I went and I had confirmation hearings for the Senate, the uh, some faculty came to Washington (laughs) and protested outside the hearing room that no one asked. They didn't ask. Say it was okay for me to go to Washington. Oh, so they this. were protesting yeah, about they you. they wanted me to stay, oh, and my. they said, why, how dare you? You know, who told yeah. you that it was okay for you to have her go to Washington? <laughs> and we, no one asked us. We're the faculty senate, and we yeah. liked it. So finally, um, <laughs> I went to Washington, and now I was running uh, education. Yeah. And it was a very interesting uh, experience. Mm-hmm. The main thing I did before I went was to figure out if I had any power to do anything, yeah. which is very important. Yeah. And so I read the budget for the uh, department, okay. and I noticed one thing, and it said that the major power that this office had, and actually it was really the only real power that it had, uh, was that the budget could not be introduced and passed by the president and then sent on to Congress unless mm-hmm. the I approved it. It said the assistant secretary for education must approve the budget before it can. And so that meant that all of those agencies that were supposed to report to me and didn't mm-hmm. want to, because people don't like to report to other people, yeah. uh, <laughs> and had power and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, they thought 
that they could do whatever they presented. Mm-hmm. And when they, it was funny because when they, funny odd, because <laughs> once they did all the budgets and did all this stuff, yeah. and I would keep asking them what they were doing, and they would tell me part of it or whatever. <laughs> it was a game. I mean, yeah. They do that. Mm-hmm. They sent the budgets over to the uh, Office of Management Budget for the president's review in the budget, but go to the Hill. And the guy who does education in the uh, Office of Management Budget sent it back to them and said, it doesn't have the signature of the Assistant Secretary of Education. <laughs> and they were all new people, too. Okay. They had just come in with the administration. Mm-hmm. So they said, we don't understand. He said, well, read the law. you got to, you know. And so then they had to come, even though they didn't come before, yeah. and let me see it. And I loved that because it got me a chance to look at it. And I was yeah. mainly interested in the, it's a, it was a huge uh, budget, uh, uh, budget, and I was mainly interested in a big program that was for poor, uh, disadvantaged kids in K through 12 school, mm-hmm. called the Title One program, then now called Chapter One, mm-hmm. which gave extra money to school districts in order to provide supports and different stuff for them to help them with their education. Okay. And so I wanted to be sure in particular. So working for Jimmy Carter was. Um, I liked him. He was what I call a reconstructed, um, what do you call it, a reconstructed racist. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. He was a southern boy, you know, growing up there in a little town and mm-hmm. uh, farming and everybody around there, certain race, negative race questions yeah. were things that they sort of assumed answers to. Yep. But he was a reconstructed racist. Okay. Uh, which I sometimes think is the best kind. Um, and he had, um, he was very, very uh, out of his depth, he thought, in Washington because he didn't like to play Washington politics and he didn't mm-hmm. like all the games that were played and he didn't do stuff like uh, invite people over from the hill at night to have drinks because he didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, his staff, he had two guys who worked for him who were like nephews, sort of, Ham Jordan uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the other guy. And they, they worked in his office, and they'd never done a job like that. Yeah. So Ham, who was supposed to be his, I don't know, some kind of staff, major staffer, mm-hmm. he would let messages pile up on his desk. In oh, those no. days, you got phone messages, and they were written on little slips, yeah. secretaries, and they would stick them on this metal thing with the point up uh-huh. and it went when you got him and when you went by ham's office he would have messages just stacked up everywhere place, maybe piled all up everywhere and he yeah. never had returned any yeah. of them it didn't matter who it was mm-hmm. <laughs> it could be the speaker of the house trying yeah. to get the president you know and that didn't make people uh, like him very much yeah. and in a sense uh, President Carter was sort of snake bit, I think, because he had all these things that happened. Like one time he was out on the water in a boat or something, a little canoe, and he thought he saw a rabbit, and he was trying to hit whatever it was, and somebody took a picture of him, and people made fun of that. Oh, yeah. And people were, because he was sort of, uh, you know, the Southerner. He got to be president mainly by not being Nixon yeah. and saying that he was going to be honest yes. and all the rest of it. Yep. And that's what he did. But I enjoyed working for him. Um, he did quite a few things that I agreed with, although he was not adept 
at doing the politics yeah. of Washington. Okay. And in a sense, he was an easy target, therefore. Yeah. And then we had inflation. If you think mm. you have inflation now, yeah. we Where's had inflation then? where there were gas lines and you had to go yeah. on certain days to get you know, gas. petrol, ca- gas yeah. in your car, and everything was up, and the mm. Gulf nations were giving us problems, and there yeah. were all kinds of issues. But I enjoyed the experience. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. That is certainly a cool perspective on working with um, Jimmy Carter. Um, my next question is, so I actually, our enti- um, most of our staff watched your interview on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Oh, Trevor. Yeah, yeah, which was a great, like, fantastic interview. So those listening, I definitely think you should go watch it. But one thing I thought was really interesting is Trevor Noah asked you what you thought the most pres- pressing issue was at the time. And now this interview was two years ago. And you said climate change. I'm wondering if you still think that's the most pressing issue today. If so, why? Or if not, what do you think is the most pressing issue? Well, I think that there are a lot of pressing issues. Racism, militarism, you know, all those poverty, doing something about it, uh, and all of those uh, issues. For sure. Uh, Trying to get people uh, quality education and, you know, people who are locked out and so on. And Mm -hmm. I could just, you know, name. But I think climate change should be an issue that there's consensus about. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's not as much consensus as there should be. Yeah. But the effects of climate change, the negative effects of climate change... And the impact that it will have uh, with people all around the world, mm-hmm. uh, poor people in countries, not just here in the United States with the impact on us, but impact on countries, uh, the poorest countries, the yeah. people who already have droughts and, you know, all the time and uh, extreme poverty and mm-hmm. all those issues. Uh, it's made much worse, you know, for them. And the health effects on everybody. Yeah are enormous, yeah. uh, and the effects not only on us, but on animal life and plant mm-hmm. life and the world as we know it. Uh, and while it will not be seen probably in my lifetime or the lifetime of people who are very young now, mm-hmm. it will be seen in the lifetime of everybody sooner or later who's around. Yeah. And so I would think that everybody, <laughs> yeah. I thought that this was one issue where you ought to have consensus, that yeah. we can argue about what to do about it, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of things that we don't do that we could do. Mm-hmm. For example, when we start talking about everybody buying uh, electric vehicles, cars, mm-hmm. the first thing I asked was, are we going to have charging stations everywhere? Yeah. And what about people? And then somebody said, well, you can just put one at your house and drive up in the driveway. I said, what about people that don't live in houses that have yeah. driveway? How about people who live in apartment buildings? How exactly. about people who live... Wherever. So what are you going to do about that? Before you start yeah. telling people to buy cars, you mm-hmm. have to figure out some way. Yeah. <laughs> and how much is it going to cost for them to do that? Yeah. And how long will it take? And what mm-hmm. will they do? So we have to answer a lot yeah. of different questions. And we shouldn't say things that uh, have to be done that aren't really necessary to mm-hmm. be done just to, on the one hand, make people think we don't need to do anything because it's ridiculous, (laughs) and on the other hand, to just make people do things just because we personally think somebody should do something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that climate change, uh, unlike when you deal with racism, sometimes Mm -hmm. people who are 
are white supremacists or not even that, but are just worried about demography and yeah. what's going to happen to their children and so on, mm-hmm. don't get with it. Uh, you might be able to get everybody to agree, and I still yeah. think that. Yeah, about our saving our earth because we all live here. So. Yes, yes. That is definitely um, true. Well, thank you so much for that answer. Um, we, like I said in the beginning, we're really excited to have you speak at our event tonight. Um, and it has been a great week here at Grand Valley um, honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and just his legacy and um, all the work we still have to do. Um, so I was curious, what do you remember about Dr. King when he was highly active in the civil rights movement? And how does he continue to inspire your work today? Well, he's always inspired me. And sometimes I, I think that he and Coretta, his wife, who was as important in my view, although the public doesn't understand that, yeah. uh, in terms of her influence. And sure. all those women who were in the civil rights movement, the mm-hmm. mothers, uh, the wives, uh, the people whose names we know, like Fetty Lou Hamer, the people mm-hmm. whose names we don't know, like Unita Blackwell, the pe- all those people uh, that uh, we should uh, acknowledge uh, the impact and the influence and the importance that they had. But I think for Martin Luther King, the thing that strikes me more than anything else, uh, when I was in law school, I was uh, at Michigan Law School, and he was assassinated. And I remember that I was sitting uh, outside across from the student union with a friend of mine, Gerald Poindexter, who was in my class. And that class was a huge class because the Vietnam War was on and people were going to law school so they didn't have to (laughs) be drafted. So we had a huge class. But it had a class, it was only seven, there were only seven black students in this Mm -hmm. whole uh, class, my class. Uh, There were like, you know, three, four, five hundred, a lot of people. And I remember being so upset when somebody told us that uh, he had been assassinated. Mm -hmm. And I looked across the street and the students, and they were all white students, were coming out of the Michigan uh, Union with a dress like Native Americans because they had a, f- a festival that they did every year yeah. uh, that had to do with, I forgot the name of it, where they did Indian dances and did oh, stuff. Okay. Nobody does it anymore, but yeah. they used to, it was a historic thing. And they were coming out singing, dancing, and partying. And I thought, how incongruous. Here I am sitting Uh, over here looking at them doing the festival. And I'm thinking about him being assassinated. And Gerald and I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times saying how sad we were that he had and what we thought should be done, mm-hmm. and sent it, and we said, we know they're not going to publish it. They didn't. Yeah. But it made us feel better. And then we yeah. went inside, and we had the classic sad thing happen, where I went in the restroom, and there were some people talking, and they said, well, he deserved it. He shouldn't have been out there trying to get people to do, they didn't see me. Well, he shouldn't get been out there getting people to do all this stuff, making all that trouble, and whatever, oh whatever. And that was heartbreaking. Yeah, that is. Uh, then the other kind of milestones is after that when he um, gave when he gave speeches like the one against the war okay. in Vietnam mm-hmm. um, and then of course when he was assassinated but it was the his youth and the fact that he was so young when he started all this mm-hmm. and then when he was so young when he was assassinated and his steadfast courage 
in the face of criticism and obstacles. I love that thing he said one time that if he spent all of his time trying to answer people who were criticizing him, he wouldn't get anything done. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for those insights. And like I said, we um, are so excited to have you speak at our event tonight. Um, My last question for you, um, just real quick, is something I actually ask all of our podcast guests, but um, it... Basically, what the question is, is what advice would you give to someone wanting to, to pursue a life similar to yours? So kind of my version for you would be, what advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a life filled with activism? Well, the first thing is you have to prepare yourself to be a strategic thinker. Okay. Which means you have to read widely, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means you have to be very thoughtful. Yeah. And it means also you have to be thick-skinned, and it means that you have to be courageous enough and steadfast enough that you don't really care whether people think you're making trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because your whole goal is to make trouble. Yeah. As John Lewis would say, good trouble. Yeah, I love that. That's great advice. Thank you so much. And thank you again for answering all my questions and being on the podcast today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Off the Stage Podcast, a series produced by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The Hauenstein Center, inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of leadership and service, is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and reoccurring initiatives, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review or rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening to Off the Stage Podcast.